What famous global automaker learned how to set up an assembly line by sending an engineer through an American auto plant as a tourist? Oh, subterfuge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Bob, who was the only president before JFK to dance at their inaugural ball? Hmm, answers to those <laughs> and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, Marcia, that's perspective. I didn't know that no U.S. president danced at his own inaugural ball until JFK? No, only one did. Only one did. And that's what the question is. Who, Who was, was it? it? Hmm, I'll say Woodrow Wilson. Why? I just seem to be an urbane, sophisticated gentleman. Old Woody, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Old Woodrow. Woody Wilson. No, you have to go back a bit farther. Okay. It was George and Martha. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. <laughs> no. They were the last yes. presidential couple to dance at an inaugural yeah, ball until yeah. JFK. Yeah. You remember from our vast readings on George that he did love to dance. He did love to dance and he loved the ladies. And he did. So I'm sure he danced with more than Martha. But the point is, nobody did it after him until John F. Kennedy. No kidding. Yeah. That was almost 200 years later. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I had no idea. That's a great tidbit. Well, I've got some presidential trivia coming up. But oh, first, exciting. But first, <laughs> automotive trivia, Marsha. Oh, yeah. What global automaker learned how to set up an assembly line by sending an engineer through an American auto plant as a tourist? Well, I have what to would be the brand name? BMW? No. They're still around, correct? Yes, the very big name. Yes. Another part of the world from Europe. Tell me. <laughs> Toyota from oh, Japan. Really? Yes. Oh, I'll be dying. Okay. The Toyota company was originally the Toyoda, T-O-Y-O-D-A, Automatic Loom Works Company. They were a textile firm. And Sakichi Toyoda received a 200,000-pound loan from a Lancashire, England firm in 1929 for rights to produce an advanced loom in England. So he took that money, but instead put it into the development of a motor car design. Then... How do you make the thing? Well, Toyota put his son, Kichiro, in charge of the venture, and Kichiro sent an engineer to the Packard Works in Detroit as a tourist. While visiting the Packard plant, the engineer acquired enough information on how to set up an assembly line, and the first Toyota car was introduced in Japan in 1935. And they've been stealing ever since. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how they got started. They disassembled American passenger cars and figured out how they worked. They started with a Chevy, took it apart, and then the first prototype passenger car produced in 1935 by Toyota was comprised of body parts of Chrysler, Ford, and Chevrolet automobiles. Yeah. And you know, well, you have to go that. back to the first textile plant in the United States. That was set up by a man who left England memorizing everything yeah. that he had done. He set up a loom and a mill in Massachusetts. Right. So okay. that's how that got started. So, you know, yeah. industrial espionage goes way back. Yeah. Okay. And speaking again of George Washington. Okay. He married the widow Martha Dandridge Custis mm -hmm. at her plantation home. That's right. Plantations all had names back then, all cutesy names. So what was Martha's big house called? 
Her big house. What you know, was her it plantation. Called? What was it called? See, what was the name of that place? I don't know. What's the answer? Well, Bob, it was a harbinger of things to come. The White House. <laughs> no, no kidding. Yeah, it was called the White House. That was her plantation. Her family yeah. plantation's yeah. name was the White House. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Uh-huh. That's, I had no and idea. And that's why it's coming out of your wife's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> of course it's interesting. <laughs> of course it's interesting. All right, what do you got? Where does the word advertising come from? What does it mean originally? Adverts. Advertise. 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 Does it, it come from England? It comes Adver- from a Latin word called oh, advertare, which means to turn. Turn. Okay. So an advertisement literally means that which causes one to turn and look. Well, that's that makes, makes sense, sense, doesn't it? Yes, it does that's make sense. That's what a good and advertisement always, should do, get uh, attention. Yes, I've always loved advertising. So, uh, so the, what was the question? What did the word advertising originally oh, mean? It means to turn and to look. Well, they're very good, Marsh. <laughs> All right, I got it right. Let's move on. Okay, from Parade Magazine. Uh Ah. What author has had more writings adapted for the screen than anyone else? I think it's Agatha Christie, wasn't it? Good guess, but no. No, no, no. Really? Yes. Oh, is it? Wait a minute. It's, Uh hmm, is it somebody before her or after her? After. It's, okay, I was going to say maybe it's Mark Twain because he had a number of things. But check this out. It's a he. And his books have been adapted more than 90 times. Into films? Yep. Films or movies or or, TV shows or something. Anyway, it's the American author Stephen King. Wow. The king of books uh, has made more movies and TV shows from his work than anybody else. 90 adaptations. And there's even a new version of one of his first ones, which is... Firestarter. Do you oh, yeah. remember that? 19, I remember that book. I read that book. 1984, starring, yeah. do you remember who starred in that? No, who starred Drew in Drew Barrymore. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Wasn't she a little girl? Yes. The story was about a little girl that could start fires. Yeah, well, indeed she did. Uh, so it's coming out again, a new new version. Okay. Uh, All right, Marcia, I'm going to give you the name of several American towns. Oh. Cheyenne, Wyoming. Yes. North Platte, Nebraska. Julesburg, yeah. Colorado. And Laramie, Wyoming. All of these owe their existence to one American business company. Which one? I'll name them again. Cheyenne, Wyoming, North Platte, Nebraska, Julesburg, Colorado, Laramie, Wyoming. I almost moved to Laramie once. Did I tell you that? No. For a reporter's job, but yeah. We had a flat tire in Laramie. Did I tell you that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the history. Okay, I have no idea. All of those towns owe their existence to the Union Pacific Railroad. Oh, that makes sense. And it's not because the town sprung up along the railroad route. The town sprung up before the railroad got there. Greenville Dodge, one of the Union Pacific Railroad investors, used his connections to learn the railroad's path through Wyoming. And as a result, he was able to plot and build before the Irish immigrant laborers started to work there. Cheyenne, Laramie, North Platte, and Julesburg all were built in advance, just waiting for the transportation link to reach the new villages. Okay. They were probably called two tank towns or one yeah. tank towns, and it related to how many water tanks were there for okay. the oh, locomotive engines. Sense. Well, that makes perfect sense. And so does this, Bob. Okay. Remember the big superstar singing event, uh, charity fundraiser, We Are the World? Yes, we are the world. Yes, I do. 1985. They raised almost 50 million bucks. And they invited anybody who was anybody who could sing. That was in L.A. at the time. 46 singers sang. Everyone from Willie Nelson to Tina Turner were invited to join the Songfest. Mm-hmm. But guitarist singer Niles Rogers recently 
noted that one female pop singer who was on the charts then and wanted to sing at the event was not invited to join the select group because, quote, some of her peers feel that she did not deserve a spot on the lineup. Who was it? Well, that's my question. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> uh, all right. So would that be someone who was a, was she a pop star? Yeah. A rock star? Well, I don't know if you'd call it rock. Is it, it Barbara could... Streisand? No. Okay. Who, who was it? No. Madonna. Oh, no kidding. She wanted to sing, and they said, no, no, you don't deserve a spot. I wonder if she must have. Who ran that thing? It was Ken uh, Cragen. Ken Cragen was the guy who started it, who had been Harry Chapin's manager. Harry Chapin had died a few years earlier. He said he felt like Harry Chapin was running it through him. And he said, one day I thought, my God, Harry's alive. He's running this whole thing. He's getting me to get all these people and bring them in. And who put the music together and wrote the song? That was uh, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson. And Quincy Jones. Yes, that's and, right. Uh, yeah, but somebody had it in for Madonna. A couple mm. of interesting side notes on that big event. Waylon Jennings walked off the stage over a dispute about the lyrics. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah. Prince didn't like the song, and he didn't even show up. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and during the recording of the song, Cindy Lauper leans over to Billy Joe and says, this sounds like a Pepsi commercial. <laughs> <laughs> and I listened to it. You know what? She's kind of right. It's it's good. It is a good song. It was a good it, thing, though. It, it was a oh, good it cause. Oh, it was wonderful. World and hunger. It, it did sound like a Pepsi commercial. Yeah. All right, I have two more questions on advertising, Marsha. All righty. What was the first written ad in history? How far back does it go, and what was it for? Oh, the first written ad. Okay, give me a... <sighs> okay, archaeologists found it in the ruins of ancient Thebes. Thebes. Egypt. Oh. oh. What was the first written ad in history for? Oh. Urns of wine. Unfortunately, no. It was for a runaway slave, for oh, the return geez. of a runaway slave. And guess what? What? That's what the first ad for an American magazine was. The same thing. A the tiny notice thing. for a runaway slave in Benjamin Franklin's General Magazine and Historical Chronicle. Okay, we have advertising slogans, good to the last drop, when it rains it pours, etc. What's the origin of the word slogan? What does that mean? When you want to come up with something catchy and interesting, you have to slow down and say it again. <laughs> no. <laughs> Tell me. It's Scottish. Slogan is Scottish, and it means battle cry, which makes sense. You've got a military campaign. You need a battle cry. Well, you have an advertising campaign. You need a slogan. So it's from the Scottish Gaelic slug, S-L-U-A-G-H, and garm, yell. So it means a battle cry. The term advertising slogan came into wide use in the 1840s when patent medicine men announced or yelled about their wares from their wagons. So they go, oh, he's got a slogan. He's yelling over there. Okay. A battle cry. That's interesting. What's the most famous slogan that pops into your head? I think good to the last drop is the one I think. Wow. And that goes back to the 50s. Supposedly, it goes back to Teddy Roosevelt. He supposedly was at the Maxwell House Hotel in Nashville. Oh, okay. Given a cup of coffee, and he said, my goodness, that's good to the last drop. That's, that's the story. We don't know if it's true. That's right. All okay. Right. You ready? Yes. The planet Uranus mm. has four seasons, just like Earth, and they all last an equal amount of time. How long do they last? How long is winter on Uranus? Uh, how long is winter? I'll say it's two months. Close. 21 years. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Each 21 years. Yes, it takes 84 years for that planet to go full orbit. So it's 21 years each for each season. 
It's the coldest planet in our solar system, and it gets a bit zingy, minus 371 degrees Fahrenheit for our seventh planet from the sun. That's a cold, long, long winter. That is 21 years. My God. All right, let's go to the tropics, Marsha. Where does the term alligator come from? Alligator. It comes from a Spanish word. To have all gators together. Al was actually E-L. El lagarto. El lagarto, which means the lizard. Oh, well, that makes perfect sense. And then uh, Mississippi keelboat men like to think of themselves as rough and tough alligators. They began calling themselves alligators by 1808. Alligators came to mean jazz musicians in 1915. And then from these musical backgrounds came the rhyming jive farewell, see you later, alligator, in the 1930s. So it kind of progressed from southern keelboat to southern musicians to southern music. But it didn't evolve to Gatorade, which is never called lizard aid. No, no. El Legarto. (laughs) Okay. Sounds like a cigar, doesn't it? It it does. It has a ring to it. Let's take a puff. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening. 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 You're listening. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marsha. Smith. Back again with The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. All right, we mentioned slavery a moment ago. The first written advertisement was in Egypt. It was for a runaway slave. Now, we all know slavery was big in the New World. What country imported more slaves than any other? Than any other. Okay, well, bet it's not America because you wouldn't have asked me. Oh, the United States? Yes. No, not the United States. <laughs> you led me to that. Well, no, there are other countries in America. There's Mexico. Yes, yes. There's dear. Canada. Yes. There's South American countries. Mm-hmm. What country? Uh, what country in South America? I'd say Brazil. Brazil. More enslaved Africans were imported by Brazil, 4.8 million, than any other country. They didn't abolish slavery until 1888, and by the time it did, many captives had escaped to remote areas. They were working Brazil's gold mines. Oh, okay. Tough work. So then they escaped and settled in the jungle. Now, this is interesting. I had no idea. There are now approximately 5,900 of these African-based communities spread across Brazil today. They're called quilombos. In fact, 56% of Brazilians identify themselves as descendants oh, no kidding. of Africans. The ancestors of 56%. the, the slaves. This is according to the Brazilian Institute of Geography and Statistics. Yeah, Brazil, huh? Yeah, and unfortunately, despite having more than 50% of the population, few Afro-descendants have achieved much power. And the average income of Afro-Brazilians is almost half of that of whites. We've done slaves. a lot better here right up to president. Yeah. So we are making progress. Okay, Bob. Okay, Marcia, here's a fashion question for you. Okay. How long have T-shirts been around? T-shirts. When did T-shirts first appear? 1831. Wow, you're wrong. (laughs) Oh, you got me excited for a second. (laughs) Well, I like to do that. Uh, (laughs) A second. They only go back a little over 100 years. They're uh, since at least 1904. And this is funny. That's when the Cooper Underwear Company... Ran a magazine ad announcing a new product for bachelors. Oh, really? No muss, no fuss. A bachelor undershirt with no safety pins, no buttons, no needle, no thread. You just pull it over your head and put it on. Well, that's incredible thinking. 
I was thinking that it, it might have come about during the Civil War. You know, didn't they wear T-shirts underneath their heavy little uniforms? They actually evolved out of the long johns that men wore in the 19th century when yeah. a number of garment makers experimented with methods that would allow the fabric to stretch over the head and then snap back into shape. And then this was introduced in 1904. The following year, in 1905, the Navy adopted them. And soon thousands of men became acquainted with the comfort of the cotton pullover. When was the first published reference to a T-shirt and what novelist used it? Good God, Bob. What famous novelist made the first published reference to a T-shirt? Okay, which one? He was a with-it, jazz-age kind of writer. Who? Well, who do you associate with the jazz age? Uh, uh, what's his name? Um, That's the guy. Yeah. <laughs> what's his name? An um, initial and then a middle name yeah, and yeah, a last yeah, name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of his name. Hold on. F... F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yes. <laughs> and that was uh, March 26, 1920. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the author was the first to use the word T-shirt in print. It's in the 1920 novel, This Side of Paradise. And it was listed among the items a character was taking to a college prep boarding school. And what famous president now, Bob, is seen wearing a T-shirt regularly? What famous president now is seen mm -hmm. wearing a T-shirt regularly? Joe Biden? No. Ukraine president. Oh, that's right. That's he's, right. Zelensky. Yeah, Zelensky's out there wearing green fatigues T-shirts all the time. How many uh, Americans do you think own at least one T-shirt? How many Americans? Yeah, in, in terms in of In terms of millions? Out of 10 Americans. After every 10 I'd Americans. Say, I'd say nine and a half out of 10. 95% of Americans wear T-shirts. Okay. So you're close to 10. And nine in every 10 Americans own at least one T-shirt they refuse to throw away because of sentimental attachment. <laughs> absolutely, it's absolutely. probably got something written on it, or maybe that's when they met their spouse with that or oh. something like that. Now, here's a question for you, Bob. Okay. It's impossible to hum if you do what? Impossible to hum if you do what? Yes. If you're gargling at the same time. Well, no, you can hum when you're gargling. Uh -huh. I've done that. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's your national anthem right there. Oh, I it's impossible to hum if it. you pinch your nose. That's exactly right. Yes, yes. Good for you. Try it. Well, hmm, hmm, hmm. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? How did you figure that out? <laughs> Help me out of here. Help um, me out of here. I don't know. I just thought about that. That was good deduction there, Bob. Well, good. And I'm glad. I hope everybody liked my gargling there. All right, I have a question for you. We live in an age of data, Marsha. The world is awash in data. Everything is measured. So tell me... Metrics, metrics. How much time do you have to make an impression on someone romantically? Oh, not much. I'll say, I'll say 90 seconds. Well, that would be a luxury. Oh, it's like 10 seconds, isn't it? According to the New York Times, you have just three seconds. Oh, well, that's ridiculous. And that's meeting face-to-face. That comes from a 2005 University of Pennsylvania study using data from Hurry Date, which is a speed dating company. Yes, yes. They found most people gauge the attraction of another person within three seconds of meeting them. That's well, meeting in person, not swiping photos on a dating app. Meeting someone. Okay. Wow. That's, uh, that's, that's harsh, harsh, isn't it? <laughs> yes, That's very harsh. Okay, wow. how far back does speed dating go? Well, geez. It's did pretty you ever recent. Do it? It's pretty. No, I never did. Yeah. Our daughter, I think, did it. Not. And speed dating ago. is it's like musical chairs, and they switch, and yeah. other people sit down yeah, in front I know, of you. Yeah, I know what it is. I also wanted to do it. Not recently. Uh, how, how far does it go? I'll say, I'll say 1990. 
Well, a little more recent than that, 1998. Oh, really? That yeah. is recent. And it's a great idea. The first speed dating event that is known was held at a Pete's coffee shop in Beverly Hills in 1998. The host was Rabbi Yako Deo. He was trying to form connections for Jewish singles. He said, we thought 10 minutes was enough time for each date in a busy coffee house. <laughs> and and that was, time frame it, inspired matchmakers all around the world. And it was all over in 10 seconds. So yeah, 10 minutes. Uh, ten, well, three, yeah, three seconds. Yeah. So you have three seconds and you go, I don't like this person. Yeah. I got to talk for another nine minutes yes. and 57 but seconds. But the point is, see, uh, yeah, I mean, look at you and I. I mean, it took uh, it took a whole date before we decided to get married. So a whole it's date. It, it's not fair to judge in so quickly, right? Because I thought you were... You, you didn't ring what? my bell the first 10 what? You seconds. thought I was what? I didn't, you didn't ring what my... Did, no, you just shook your head and said no. You weren't no. my type, but I was very wrong, 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 wrong. <laughs> okay, all right. Should we tell people how you insulted me when no, we met? that's another time. No, no, since you mentioned I was the wrong kind of guy. When Marcia first met me, I said, excuse me, is this where the interview is taking place? And Marcia turned around, looked me up and down and said, who the hell are you? Yes, it's family lore, Bob. Move on. It's true. It's <laughs> yes, true. it is. Didn't we tell that story before? So I didn't ring your bell. Okay. Oh, well. Fine. Just All right. fine. The average human being, that includes you. <laughs> well, and thank you. You're welcome. Has around 10 to 12 pints of blood in their body. Mm-hmm. How much is a baby born with? Oh, that's a good question. How much blood is a baby born with? Is it in pints? How is it measured? Liters? I'm not going to tell you. How many thimbles full of blood does a no, baby have? No, it's more than a thimble. Okay, is it uh, eight pints? 10 to 12 is what an adult has. You think a baby has eight oh. pints? No, I would assume a baby is like a fourth of that. So that would be? Three? No, it's one cup of blood. Eight wow. ounces, which is half a pint, right? So uh, it's just, uh, that's all they have when they're born, uh, one cup of blood. That's amazing. It is. Okay, Marcia, you and I have this discussion every once in a while. Let's get rid of the landline. No, let's keep the landline. Yeah. Let's get rid of the landline. No, let's keep the landline. <laughs> okay, how many U.S. homes have landline phones today versus 20 years ago? Oh, my gosh. Percentage, right? Yes, percentage, percentage of people in America now? God, not many. I'll say 15%. 15%. No, it's more than that. Oh, good. It's about double that. Oh, 30, okay. But the drop's been very steep. And interestingly, the data comes from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. What? Why? <laughs> because they always wanted to know how close a person was to a telephone yeah. if they needed help. Yeah. So they always included that in their surveys of people. Oh, interesting. And over time, the landline answer back in 2003 was 90%. In 2003, 9 out of 10 households had landline phones. 18 years later, in June 2021, the number of landlines had dropped to just 30%. So since 2003, landline telephones and homes have gone from 90% of American households to just over 30%. I I don't know, Bob. I know you could do it, but I, I just don't feel comfortable. We're always looking for our phones, and I like it when people call both of us. You know, they don't have to call one phone or the other. And I like when the kids call and we can both all be on the phone, on the but landline. But you can put it on speakerphone. I know, but plus it doesn't run out of juice usually. Well, your heart will be warmed by this, Marsha. Okay. Old, used, screenless landline phones are making a comeback. Really? In fact, sales are going through the roof. You can even buy them on Etsy. Why? 
Why? Because they have no screens. <laughs> <laughs> Their handheld receivers have style, simplicity, and people who like them say there's only a three-foot cord, so you can't go anywhere while you're talking. You can have a real conversation without distraction. And we shouldn't forget millennials. What are they out buying? Turntables. So you know, That's right. So they're buying turntables <laughs> yeah. and getting rid of landlines. Yeah. Okay. okay. Before my quote, in 2002, Bob, the world's oldest wooden wheel was found in Slovenia. Hmm. How old was it? How old was the oldest wooden wheel? Yeah. We Sounds knew. like a riddle. Uh, it does. <laughs> it does. Okay. So they found it in 2002, but it must go back to like, I don't know, a thousand BC, maybe. The uh, thousand B. Well, well, it's, no, it's wood. Things that are wood don't last that long. So let's say it goes back to about the thirteen hundreds or the twelve hundreds. Well, I have it in years old. Okay, you do the math. It was between five thousand one hundred and five thousand three hundred years old. Wow, that's how old the wheel. So it's about three thousand BC. Is that what it is? Well, five thousand. You take it. We're two thousand years into you know the yeah. new, new yeah. age. Yeah. So that's real. Wow, three thousand BC, and it's wooden. Yeah. And found in Slovenia. Yeah. I to who? I wouldn't have guessed that in a million years. Okay. Here's a little tidbit you wouldn't know about. Okay. What famous astronaut was born outside of the United States in Rome, Italy? Well, it has. I, there has to that be somebody who you know from Shepherd. the earlier periods. Shepard. No. No. Michael Collins. Oh, yeah. His father was the American military attache in Rome when he was born. What great inventor once wrote an article on lizards for National Geographic under the pen name H.A. Large Lamb? <laughs> Large Lamb. <laughs> Large Lamb. It's an interesting pen name. Uh, who, Bob? Alec Bell. Alexander Graham? Yeah, Alexander Graham Bell, but his friends called him Alec, Alec Bell. Uh-huh. In addition to his work with the deaf and the telephone, he was also one of the original founders of National Geographic. So he wrote articles on natural things. This article was on lizards and turtles. He wrote a lot of articles for them to get it started. Okay, you had presidential statistics. Here's my last one for today. Okay. In the entire history of the United States, no U.S. president has been this. What? In terms of their family, no U.S. president has Uh, ever been... Bachelor? No, we had a bachelor. A, a Presbyterian? No, no, <laughs> we've probably had those. I don't know. So far, no U.S. president has ever been an only child. Oh, really? At Isn't minimum, that each president has had at least one half brother or half sister in the family. Franklin okay. Roosevelt, who famously was raised like an only child, yes, indeed, actually had a half sibling, his father's oldest son James, who was twenty-eight years older. But in Mama's eyes, he was the only one. (laughs) (laughs) And two recent presidents were raised like they were only children, too. Uh Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, they both had half-siblings a decade younger than them. Gerald Ford was raised with three younger half-brothers, and he had three younger half-sisters via his father. But no U.S. president has ever been an only child. A lot of firstborns, but no only child. Well, and speaking of Bill Clinton, yes, I'm going to end with a Robin Williams quote commenting on President Bill Clinton's sex scandal. Okay. <laughs> he said, quote, God gave men both a penis and a brain, but unfortunately, not enough blood supply to run both at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and you want to end on that one, huh? I think it was funny. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Okay. Well, we want to remind you, if you'd like to contribute to The Off-Ramp, <laughs> you can do so by going to our website, theofframp.show, going down to Contact Us, leaving us information, maybe a question and an answer, and something about yourself. We'd like to know where people are listening from. 
Give me something I can stump Marsha with. I see. I had two blood questions. Yeah, how interesting. (laughs) Okay. All right. I think that's it for now, Marsha. All right. I'm done. Hope you enjoyed today's show and come back when we return next week with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia here on The The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.